0: It was really wonderful to do science with her. It was really enjoyable. Always tough, you know. There's always those tough parts. Every relationship has them. But it was a really, really good working relationship.
1: This is the day that changed everything. A podcast series produced by Main Biz, Maine's business news source. Every two weeks, we'll post an interview with a business leader whose life was upended in one day, and learn how they navigated their way back. If all great change is preceded by chaos, then this podcast series seeks to make sense of the chaos. The Day That Changed Everything is sponsored by MTI, or Maine Technology Institute,
0: Norway Savings Bank, and Vistage. As the CEO or owner of a small or mid-sized business in Maine, you've got the weight of the world on you. But what if you didn't have to go at it alone? What if you could journey with an elite team of peers who've got your back and an experienced guide who knows the lay of the land? With that level of support, how far could you go? For more than 60 years, Vistage... The world's leading executive coaching and peer advisory organization has been helping leaders reach new heights. Learn more at vistage.com. That's V I S T A G E.com.
2: Welcome, Main Biz listeners. I'm Renee Cortis with the Main Biz podcast team. Today's guest is Kay Aiken, founder and chief product officer at Dynamic Grid a Portland-based startup that provides control systems for electric grid utilities. Kay will tell us about how she started the company with the late Carol Johnson, her business partner and longtime companion, and how the company evolved and the challenges of continuing that mission after Carol's death from cancer in November 2019. Let's hear more from Kay. So, Kay, welcome to our podcast, and thank you for joining us today.
0: I'm very honored to be here.
2: (laughs) Glad to have you. So, first, Kay, can you tell us a little bit about uh, your background, where you're from, and your educational background?
0: So, I was born in New Jersey... Many years ago, fifty-six years ago now, my father was had two had a vocation and a a avocation. He was a purchasing agent for a defense contractor, and he also built church pipe organs on the side. They were said, "Uh, "Please move." So we moved to Pennsylvania. I was four and a half. Grew up in a small rural town. We had two hundred and fifty people and five hundred (laughs) cows. Pretty isolated. I ended up going for architecture at the University of Miami. Couldn't afford that long-term. It was very expensive. It's now like $80,000 a year or something at the University of Miami. Outrageously expensive. outrageously expensive. Came home, worked with my father for a little while, building pipe organs, actually. And then found an energy engineering degree at Penn State. I'd always been interested in architecture sustainability and the technology related to that. Um, and the course was really an extension of my personal exploration in that area. Interestingly, this degree was probably the first sustainability engineering degree in the US. I graduated in 1987. I was the th- one of three who graduated first, the first class. Unfortunately, the problem was none of us could find jobs because no one knew what do we do with sustainability engineering? Okay, so you got some electrical engineering, that's cool but really not enough for utility. You've got some mechanical engineering, but really not enough for a mechanical engineering firm. And you got this passive solar and solar wind technology. And what is that?
2: <laughs> and <laughs> so, how did you put that together? Didn't uh, you and your father initially build energy efficient homes?
0: Well, yeah, but that came at kind of an interesting uh, story is that I was taking a course in passive solar design from a physics professor, and I started asking questions that were beyond his uh, knowledge. And he went, so what's your background? And I explained all the research I've done and said, would you mind teaching the course on the part of the course about passive solar design? So for about eight weeks, six or eight weeks or so, I taught his course as an undergrad, senior (laughs) in, in college. Um, I mean, with his help and we created uh, lesson plans together and decided what we were going to do, et cetera. And um, from that, one of the uh, one, of my, one of my classmates who graduated with me, his brother was building a house in the Pittsburgh area, and he couldn't find anybody to design it or build it. So I built a double what's called a double envelope house, which is a passive solar house that has these double walls that Uh, Warm air is developed in the front of the house, goes in through a stone bed, comes out the back, and there's this thermal siphon that happens in the house. So uh, I designed that. That got built. I was 20 years old, and that started my business.
2: Good. So, um, Kate, let's now um, jump to the time that you first uh, crossed paths with Carol Johnson, your future life and business partner tell us how you guys met and when.
0: By this time, it was 2006. I was in my second home building business. This was in the Washington, D.C. area. I met Carol online, 2006. She was working for British Aerospace, BAE Systems in the, in the U.S., it's called, in Hawaii, in Honolulu, Hawaii. And she wrangled, to, to, to come and move in with me, she wrangled a Transfer to the Washington D.C. area. We moved into Cleveland Park, um, just north of the National Zoo. Beautiful, beautiful little area. It was great running. I was right, right at right Rock Creek Park, and so it was really, really nice. After about six or eight months, BAE Systems said, "You need to come back. <laughs> <laughs> we don't want you." You know, back, back today would be no problem. Remote, you know, was fine, but. In 2006-2007, remote was not quite there yet. So we moved back to Hawaii to our um, downtown condo that she had. At the same time, we were looking at starting a business together, mainly working off of Carol's expertise in what's called complex systems. And I'd like to say, Carol had this really big breadth of knowledge. Um, As I said in the Portland Press Herald, when she was profiled after her death, she was the smartest person I ever met. She started out as a, as a physicist, theoretical physicist at MIT. After about three years, she was told that by her advisors said, you know, there's 200 of you. Only five of you are going to actually get a job in theoretical physics, and you aren't one of them. So while she was the smartest person I ever met, apparently there's smarter people than she. <laughs> <laughs>
2: And tell us um, about some of her background in uh, pioneering work in the field of seismology. I think our yeah, listeners so, would find that very interesting. So she
0: tr- she transferred to geophysics, was taught by some of the, you know, the lions of, of geophysics at MIT. One of them, um, oh, geez, I can't remember his name right now, it's in the book, he went on to become Jimmy Carter's chief science advisor. And she she got a actually got three degrees from MIT. I found out the third degree only about six months ago when MIT wanted to do a profile of her. Is that she, all? That's all, yeah. She only had three degrees. She moved on to Caltech, got her PhD in geophysics. And she actually revolutionized the seismic world. She was the first to digitize the monitoring and the science of earthquakes. Before it was all analog, people would get a paper readout. They would go and measure with calipers on. They do all these calculations. And she actually turned that all into computer code, all that work. And today, probably over 80% of the world's Seismic network systems work off of her code. You go into the average regional network and you will find code in their code base that is uh, copyrighted by Carol.
2: So tell us, Kay, about why you guys came to Portland. <laughs> First of all, why why Portland?
0: Introspective Systems was looking at focusing on building a platform for researchers and scientists and what I would call uh, an innovators to work on these kinds of problems. So that was kind of the start of introspective systems. We started it in 2007, 2008. We started thinking about it. In 2009, it started getting more serious. And we looked around and saying, well, it's really hard to do business in Hawaii. We happened to be both. uh, We had to come east to work at Nashua, New Hampshire, which is the, main office of BAE systems at the time her division of BAE systems and a friend of ours lives in south portland and he said hey come up for thanksgiving so we had the obligatory thanksgiving lobster <laughs> of course <laughs> of course um and we just kind of fell in love i i actually lived aboard my boat 10 years before on in, in Annapolis harbor So I love sea towns. I love the ocean. And we saw this and within about three weeks I was living on Peaks Island. Um, So
2: Kay, you know, not everyone goes into business with their um, romantic (laughs) partner. So what what was that like? How did that plan get hatched?
0: Um, It kind of just evolved. I mean, we enjoy, being together, we enjoy being together, I should say now. Um it was it was just a natural extension of our life. Um and it's hard. Um uh, you know there's times when you yell I'm I'm considered the velociraptor in the company. Sometimes <laughs> I will get very, very upset and I have a little velociraptor on my shelf here that one of my employees <laughs> I can gave see me. That. But we've quickly Calm down after I calmed down after five minutes she's she was very mellow she just took it and then we work it out and it it was it was wonderful because we had a way of finishing each other's sentences so it was really wonderful to do science with her so it was it was it was really enjoyable always tough you know there's always those tough parts every relationship has them but it was it was a really really good working relationship
2: and your roles at the company so you were ceo and she was um chief innovation officer how yeah. how did that work
0: yeah cuz she was definitely the t- more technologist i you know i'm an engineer i am a technologist and scientist now but I was had much more of business experience in how to run businesses, how to do business development, how to interview customers and figure out what their real problem was, and then try to come up with a general idea of how to fix it, and then she would actually do it with the staff.
2: Now, tell us a little bit about how the company evolved. Uh, there was a major research grant from the U.S. Department of Energy in 2016. What was significant about that?
0: So again, my background, her background is complex systems and geophysics and lots of other areas. Mine was energy. Mine was how do you how do you manage energy? <clears throat> so we had an opportunity. We were looking at small business innovation research uh, grants. We actually the first seven we applied for we we lost. We didn't get, and finally we found one that was related to the Department of Energy was related to communications in the smart grid. So we put the proposal in and we won. The day we won, I got a phone call from a gentleman named Chris Erwin, who is number three, I believe, in the Department of Energy Office of Electricity, who is our project manager, and said, the reason why you won it, and you were not the number one pick, you were number four out of 27, but the reason you want it was because you were talking about the next, next grid, not just an incremental improvement. And that's what I want. is I want the next, next grid. So Kay,
2: tell me how you guys grew the company, how big the, the team got to be, at least by 2019.
0: The team got to 10 of us um, and then some subcontractors. We built a lot of the company off of uh, corporate research, uh, government research, a little bit of corporate research. While we were building product, well, you know, everything we went after from a grant standpoint was designed to enhance and improve our ability to model and manage complex systems. The electrical grid work was was an example of that. However, it was a single vertical. We were actually building a platform, which is very hard to build a platform, especially because even today, we're probably five to 10 years ahead of the time, which was one of Carol's big flaws was Carol was always looking about tomorrow's problem, not today's problem. And in business, it's hard to design and implement and commercialize tomorrow's problem, rather than today's problem.
2: Did you, speaking of tomorrow's problems, did you guys ever talk about what would happen to the company if if one of you guys couldn't continue? Hmm. Did you have a succession plan in place?
0: No, which is the problem that I'm battling right now. Ah. We weren't married. I was, I I married once before I was a little gun shy. Carol honestly asked me multiple times. I said, no. So we will talk about her cancer diagnosis, but she actually died without a will. We had written the will and she went into the hospital the last time and we just didn't get it signed and notarized. So that's one of the things we're bat- we're battling right now is is estate planning was very poor. And I will tell everyone, please, with your significant other, do estate planning. <laughs> you can be as healthy as you want to be, but if you don't do estate planning, it's not good.
2: (laughs) So you learned the hard way. I learned the hard way. (laughs) So Kate, now let's talk about the the shock of that diagnosis and certainly the first of many days that changed everything for you. What do you recall about the day that she was diagnosed?
0: Well, this is definitely the day that changed everything um, as the title of this podcast is. Uh, It was January 24th, 2019. And I guess early in the day, I didn't really realize what was going on. She woke up one day, we would sit and watch TV a little bit, you know, the news, and we had breakfast. She got breakfast. She went downstairs to work. Again, we were we lived in the same building, so it was easy to get to work. She was very, very, she persevered. She worked hard all the time. I was working on a proposal at the time, so I started working on the proposal. I came down an hour, half hour later, maybe. And I would go up and, to her office and ask her questions and say, hey, uh, what about this? you think we should go this way or this way? And she was giving me these very flippant answers. But Carol, Carol was interesting is sometimes her jokes, you get a joke, you didn't understand it. And then five minutes later, it would dawn on you what she was saying. Just little, little views of the world in a different way and and so you, you never really knew when she was joking with you or not and that went on all morning we typically would have the main meal of our day upstairs uh, at noon or so and she couldn't eat and then she what sat do you down. mean by that she couldn't like pick up her fork she just didn't eat and we didn't know what was going on and she sat down at the TV and didn't know how to turn the TV on. Her son was there. Alex works for us. And we said, "Okay, something's wrong here. You need we need to take you to the hospital." No. We need no. No. She had about four words at this point. No, absolutely, definitely, I can't remember the fourth one. And so something
2: was obviously very something
0: daunting. was obviously wrong. This, this This is when it really dawned on us that something was obviously wrong. We called her daughter, tried to call her door, daughter in Nor- Norway. She lives with her husband in Norway. Couldn't get a hold of Bryn, and called her other daughter who works at Harvard, and just get her to the hospital. Just get her. And so we call 911. Four firemen come up stairs to our apartment and go through all the neurological tests, and they're they're thinking stroke, and they say, ma'am, you need to walk with us to the ambulance no ma'am you need to walk with us to the ambulance no ma'am you have a choice the four of us will pick you up and carry you to the ambulance or you'll walk with us and she got up and walked this was about 1 30 or 2 in the afternoon by five we found out that she had a brain tumor at the time Overnight, we thought it was non-cancerous. Typically, these were non-cancerous tumors. Very good doctor, Dr. Rigani at uh, Maine Med, did surgery the next morning, around 10 in the morning, went really, really quick and well. And he came in and talked to us, um, Alex, myself, and the oldest daughter, Kat, and said, it doesn't look good. This is cancerous. Turned out. What
2: what were your emotions like that day? Oh, (laughs) hard to describe.
0: Hard to describe. I mean, I, yeah, I don't think it really dawned. Interestingly, I don't think it really dawned on me until she died, which was 10 months later. Um,
2: Now, did she undergo, she underwent treatment then for several months, I believe.
0: Yeah, they found the cancer in five places. They found it in her brain, her spinal column, lymph nodes, esophagus, and lungs. Turned out to be a very, very rare cancer, a neoendocrine esophageal cancer. There's somewhere around 20 or 30 people in the country diagnosed with it a year. The, the overall esophageal cancer is about 10,000, and then this version of neuroendocrine, which is uh, really a nerve cancer, but it started in an esophagus. They didn't find that out for another two months or so after they did a bunch of cross-typing and stuff. Yeah, it didn't because she was going to live forever. She she used to joke that I'm a runner and I have aches and pains from running and stuff like that. And she'd always joke that, oh, I'll outlive you, even though she was 17 years older than I was.
2: And and Kay, when she was going through the treatment, how how did you proceed with you know your life with daily life with and with running the business? Was she working at all <laughs> during this time? Did you carry the load?
0: Carol can't, couldn't be stopped. She was the Energizer bunny. 42 hours after coming out of surgery, she was back in the office. She worked that whole year. The day she died, we were writing a new proposal for a million dollar grant research project for the U.S. Geological, uh, U, uh, D- Department of Energy and the Geothermal Research Office. and You were writing
2: that grant even in the hospital room with her,
0: weren't you? I I, I was in the hospital room two hours before she had her massive cardiac arrest writing with her two hours before. She was absolutely lucid, still doing world-class research throughout that entire 10 months. You could not stop her. Now, did we have a lot of things to do? I mean four rounds of chemotherapy, multiple rounds of radiation, but we were beating the cancer. We did not expect her to be dying. Um, she was gonna beat this. The doctor was amazed. Uh, I, New England Cancer Specialist, uh, Devin Evans, I, I wanna shout out to Devin Evans, a great phenomenal doctor at New England Cancer Specialist. He was shocked at how well she was doing. The chemo did not affect her. She'd go in, get chemo and go back to the office.
2: And how how did you manage at the office during this time with all of this weighing on your, your shoulders?
0: Um, I just, honestly, I kind of, I have a good staff. I had a good staff. So I kind of zoned out a lot, which is probably the problems I'm dealing with today is the fallout from 10 months of dealing with Carol. And then, the, you know, whatever, year and a half now with COVID. You were also with, with Carol
2: till the very end at the hospital, till almost the very end, I believe.
0: Yeah, well, yeah, um, yeah. get her out. We were planning on, what, are we going to get her out on Saturday to Brighton Avenue, the rehab hospital, or are we going to get her out on Monday? I left at 5.30. I grabbed the McDonald's. Laid on the couch, and two hours later, get a phone call on my cell phone saying, "Get down here now." I got to the ICU unit. Um, this was the mid-care and uh, the neurological ICU unit. And there's like 15 people in her in her in her uh, hospital room working on her. An hour or two later, they get her up to the cardiac unit. And they're working on her and they just cannot stabilize her blood pressure. 11 o'clock that evening or something, they said there's nothing we can do. There's just no way we can keep her alive. So uh, the toughest job, toughest thing I ever did was say let her go. And uh, about 12:05 that the next morning, um, she died. Honestly, the first three months was a blur. Um, I got through the memorial service we had about two weeks later and fled to Norway to be with Carol's daughter. And I just, I kind of ran away. I, I came home. I, I Flew all over around the world. I I flew 65,000 miles in three months, basically just trying to keep myself busy and do something different. And that really is why the business is hurting right now, was I had zoned out for that 10 months, and I really zoned out now. And companies need leadership. And I didn't provide leadership because I didn't know where I was going. Kay, I think we'll we'll wrap up there and take a brief break. Uh,
2: appreciate your candor and sharing and, and reliving this difficult and painful chapter. And then when we return, we'll talk a bit more about this, how you carried on after this tragic loss and a writing project that you are currently working on inspired by Carol's life. Mainers have an unrivaled work ethic, an endless supply of ideas, a boundless energy to create, and the perseverance to not say it's done until it's done better than it was before. Which is why the Maine Technology Institute was created to support, nurture, and invest in those qualities and make Maine a place where ideas and people can thrive. To see how MTI supports innovation, go to maintechnology.org. That's maintechnology.org.
0: I needed a partner. I really realized that I needed a partner that I could implicitly trust. And I implicitly trusted Carol.
2: So we are back talking to Kay Aiken, who was just telling us about the death of Carol Johnson, her life and business partner in November 2019. Uh, Kay, you were talking about zoning out. So what was that like going back to work?
0: I don't think I was really thinking. Carol and I were together for 13 years, and we were together 24 hours a day. I mean, and it was good. So I was adrift and I was adrift for a long time. And COVID only made it worse. COVID, you know, by March, I think it was like March 25th. It was, it was like four days or five days after. I got home from Hawaii, and the restrictions were about you know nobody's working, everybody's working from home, and no one was making decisions by then. You know, I we were working on work uh, on a, a bunch of large sales. Um, we were working with a battery manufacturer in Dubai. That's one reason why I flew to Dubai twice during the t- three months before. We were trying to put our controls on top of their their stuff. Supply chain issues, couldn't get batteries. We had a large project in Nigeria um, for controls on cell towers that fell through. It just, we lost between our research work and our research work was actually supporting our development work. So we, we hadn't raised a lot of money, mainly because we were in this complex adaptive systems market where investors look at us and go, huh? <laughs> and honestly, we're scientists. We're not good at describing that. And that kind of explains what the next chapter of the, of the book of the company is. Is I'm not good at explaining. I, I'm fairly good at explaining, but I'm certainly... Carol was really bad at explaining, but I'm still not good enough to explain to... Investors, I can explain to you, and you get generally what we're doing, but to try to explain it in any depth to investors, investors don't get it. So, we, you know, I I kind of banged around. You know, we lost a pile of work. I lost, we lost for like a million and a half, two million dollars worth of revenue, in 2020, and that just killed us. Um, all and my what input, happened?
2: May I ask what happened to that proposal that you guys worked on in Carol's hospital room?
0: We couldn't submit it. The prime primary investigator was dead. So, while I'm a scientist at heart, I can't get grants like this. This is one of the. It's not about the ideas anymore in science. It's about the letters you have after your name. So it's very very hard to get as as a as an engineer with. 30 years of experience and lots of great ideas. It's hard for me to get a proposal to win and win.
2: So without Carol, what's without the chief, right. would have been the chief investigator? So
0: we lost a large uh, proposal to the Air Force, for the Air Force, another one for the Department of Energy, and a bunch of stuff that we would have gone for, we couldn't go for. And like I said, the research was kind of supporting our product development. And we were working toward at this point. We were working toward what dynamic grid is today, toward this this building this platform for utilities to uh, manage their utility grid.
2: And Kay, when did you start thinking about a new role for yourself? Um, you know, stepping outside the CEO role and then you know bringing in somebody else. Was that a, a hard decision to to reach?
0: Ultimately, no, because I think I was stripped down, naked in the wilderness by then, um, where I didn't have a lot. I, ne- I needed, I needed a partner. I, I I really realized that I needed a partner that I could implicitly trust, and I implicitly trusted Carol. And by chance, I was looking at either a merger with the Israeli company, or. Where I would be the CEO, but I have a larger team behind me. That didn't feel comfortable because I I didn't know what having a part the partner would be like. But it turned out, about the same time, that, uh, this was in May of this year. Uh, a woman named Danielle Layton, friend of ours, we actually Carol and I actually invested in her, her first startup. She sold the company um, to a company called Enveris, which is a oil services company. And she was available. And I said, Danielle, do you want to become my CEO? I want to concentrate on what I love doing. And I actually love working with customers. and I love product. I love figuring out and doing the science and being basically I'm taking Carol's role now for the company.
2: As the now your new role as chief product officer?
0: Yeah, we call it chief product officer because we are a product company. We're no longer a research company, but I still do research. I still, I still, I guess my role is much more of Steve Jobs, of, of evangelizing the company and explaining to people what we do and how we can make your life better.
2: Outside of, of your day job, you're also uh, working on a book. So what can you share with people about the book?
0: So the book is called Innovate Beyond the Edge of Envelopes. And I my license plate is actually I N O V and the number eight. My main uh, loon, which is another interesting story, is one of the reasons we came to Maine is because you could get a loon license plate. <laughs> good um, reason. Good reason. Carol loves loons. We have loons everywhere. Lou coming out of the rafters. <laughs> so the premise of the book was when I was in Hawaii the year before, well, a year ago, a friend of ours who's now chief, well, well, just retired as chief seismologist for this So she, he took over for Carol's position when Carol left to go to the university. He wrote that Carol's singular uh, superpower, I guess, was the ability to look beyond edge of envelopes and the way he described it was carol not only wrote past the edges of the envelopes she thought outside the box in effect but she found new envelopes to write out beyond the edge of so that was the kind of you know the smartest person in the room smartest person that i ever met the idea where she could bring in information from all kinds of different places and actually come up with something completely new and novel, right beyond the edge of the envelope. So the book is part uh, talk about our life together and her experiences, but also as kind of a recipe book for innovation. What makes an innovator? Um, It starts out with a description of science. What is science and what's the scientific principles, the scientific method, and how that relates to innovation and then more about innovation uh how innovators think and work you know and there's a difference between invention and innovators innovators actually produce product and then it goes into one of her big things which is education and how how you educate innovators and how you educate children which was a passion of hers her her Middle daughter is actually a PhD in education. So she and I are collaborating on that part of the book. And then how you apply those lessons um, to innovation. And I, I basically talk about all the things that Carol's done. I mean, Carol, I mean, The Hunt for Red October, she's mentioned in The Hunt for Red October, the book by Tom Clancy. Her her office is kind of described. Her, her background is described, not by name, but they talk about this brilliant Ph.D. student who wrote a, a program for seismology, which was taken by the Office of Naval Research and used in our current sonar systems. And it's a very famous line in the, book, in the movie where Jonesy comes up and says, I think, it, I think she's going back to mama. The, the system is going back to mama. She th- the system thinks it's a magma displacement, the sound I'm hearing, but I think it's a submarine. And they were talking about Carol. So she's got all of these things, and, and you know making water disappear is what was one of her works for the Office of Naval Research many years later. Um, and then it culminated in what we're doing in, in, in com- completely re-architecting re-arch- how we interact with the electricity network.
2: And who is, who is this book meant for? Can, you know, non-science nerds such as myself uh, appreciate and understand it?
0: Yeah, I'm writing it for every person. Um, It's really about, I'm not, I'm not getting into science per se. I talk about science in a way. um, I mean, more by antidote, you know, I talk about things like how she originally derived the Uh, idea of the seismic network and that actually came up from uh, a trip that she made to the goldstone uh, seismic uh, goldstone um, radar telescope array where she found tarantulas and and is a there's a long story and that's probably longer than we have here but um she used nature to inform her ideas on how to create and solve these complex problems so Another one of hers, she used um, thoughts about the mantis shrimp, which is a very unique shrimp with eyes that see, and I think it's 27 spectra and sees polarized light. And she used that to find submarines in the ocean.
2: So uh, before we, we wrap up this section, how are UK doing today? How's Dynamic Grid doing today?
0: Dynamic Grid is kind of just bouncing around right now. We're, Danielle and I are actively uh, raising money uh, to get to the next stage. We're waiting on a large project with the Department of Energy right now, which was supposed to be awarded two months ago, but they're behind. I think part of it is they're waiting as we speak, We're the budget is still in Washington DC is still up in the air. We're hoping we get that, it's a large project in Mount Desert Island, basically to um, provide the ability to add another 20 megawatts of solar to that grid without stressing the electrical, the distribution grid. So we're, we're raising money and I expect at this point right now, we'll, we'll raise some money in the next few months and then we'll be ready to commercialize the, the product. The product's pretty, pretty much done.
2: Certainly sounds like a lot on your plate. So we'll now take a a final break, and then we will wrap up with a few closing thoughts. This is Jennifer Cook of Norway Savings Asset Management Group. Here, we believe in family asset management. Simply put, it means we do right by you and your loved ones. And it's not necessarily the size of the portfolio we care about. It's the story behind it, a story that's unique to you. Let us help you write your next chapter. For more information, visit
0: norwaysavings.bank. Investment products are not FDIC insured, not guaranteed by the bank and may lose value. That's perseverance. And there's a lot of great things about perseverance. You will do a lot of things if you've perseverance, but you won't know what you're truly capable of until you hit endurance.
2: Thank you, Kay, for sharing. It's always hard losing a loved one, but when you also have shared your professional life with that person, as you said, 24 seven makes that loss even harder to, to bear. So before we close for today, any thoughts you'd like to share with our audience about carrying on with life and carrying on a business after losing your other half?
0: I, I yeah, um, I, I guess I really didn't learn The final lesson that Carol gave me until a few months ago, Um, and it really came into focus this month. Um, I was reading the Wall Street Journal magazine last month, and Kristen Chenoweth, the Broadway actress, the little fireplug, who's like bubbly and and vivacious, and um, is a great singer um, on Broadway. She talked about the difference between perseverance and endurance, and Carol certainly had perseverance. Carol worked 16 hours a day, doggedly working toward a goal. And I I like to explain I like to explain this idea with talking about a marathon. So I'm a marathon runner. Right now I'm not training for a marathon. Um, I can, I run three to five miles every other day or so. My knees don't allow me to run every day anymore. I used to run 80, 90 miles a week and I just, there's no way I can do that now. 25 is maybe my max. Um, but I couldn't endure a marathon today. I could not break through that 18, 19 mile wall that everyone talks about. So you actually have to, that's perseverance is is every day with clock, without clockwork, always, I'm saying, uh, run what you need to do and and keep moving. That's perseverance. And there's a lot of great things about perseverance. You, You will... You will know, know do a lot of things if you have perseverance, but you won't know what you're truly capable of until you hit endurance, you talk about endurance. In the case of a marathon, it's it's again, breaking through that 18 19 mile barrier, that's endurance. When Carol was alive, she taught me perseverance. She taught me how to keep going and, and work hard and, and toward a goal. But after she died and, and me, I guess, reassessing my life, for the last, you know, 18 months, 19 months, her final lesson to me was endurance. You have to break through that pain threshold. And I think, you know, a few months ago, I finally broke through that pain threshold and, and figured out how to move on with my life without Carol. Carol taught me these great lessons and I still love her. And it was soul crushing to lose her because honestly she thought, I would die first. But she's also taught me how to endure it. So I think that's the lesson is is, is understand the difference between perseverance and and endurance. And we all need to be able to, Kristen talks about having to go out and dance with a a rock underneath your shoe. And you learn, you know, you learn to uh, endure that
2: surely you must also think about your own mortality and what happens to dynamic grid and, and your company after after you're gone what
0: well i'm hoping to basically lead it to the employees someday um i don't think so we're in a space right now there's so much going into the green space i probably will not be involved in this company in five years because this company will probably get bought You know, one of ABB, Siemens, GE, somebody big is going to buy us. And that, I guess, be a new lesson, a new chapter. My, my, um, do I become a writer? I don't think I can retire. I tried that once. (laughs) I think probably what I'm going to do is stay in the innovation community. I've kind of toyed with the idea if I get a, a, a pile of money, I would like to start an incubator. And my incubator is gonna be a little bit different. It's gonna be resident, you come in, you will live here. We will pay your, your room and board if you have a good idea. It's gonna be competitive and we'll give you enough money for you to follow your dream. And you're gonna to have to meet guidelines. You know, like in three months, you're gonna to have to do X. And if you don't do X, you're out. And I'll keep feeding the money as they go through this this process. Basically take the money problem off of the entrepreneurs and let them focus on delivering value to customers. And if you can do that, I think we can do a lot for the entrepreneurial world rather than what I'm doing right now is I'm trying to work on product, but also raising money at the same time. And those two are very hard to balance. So I'd like to just take the money problem off so they can concentrate on solving the problems.
2: Sounds like a very worthy goal. And in other words, watch this space. So Yes.
0: <laughs> and and when I I probably have another eight months or so before I can get the book done and then probably three months worth of four months of publisher publishing and editing and stuff. So, you know, maybe in a year. Hopefully, it'll be an announcement for um, Innovate Beyond the Edge of Envelopes for people. The Day That Changed Everything is
1: a production of MainBiz. Find out more about this podcast and other MainBiz media products at mainbiz.biz. The Day That Changed Everything is sponsored by MTI or Maine Technology Institute, Norway Savings Bank, and Vistage. The MainBiz podcast team includes Donna Broussard, Allison Nason, Renee Cordes, Maureen Milliken. Will Hall, and Andrea Tetzlaff. Audio editor and producer is Chris Sedanka. Logo and marketing designer is Matt Selva. Subscribe at mainbiz.biz or via iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Copyright 2021.